Laparamis are so beautiful and inspiring to me. These qualities that we've been talking about over the last nine days or eight days, something. And being with you all in the interviews is like receiving darshan, a blessing. <laughs> Just in seeing the changes and hearing the insights and people come in so filled with this love and equanimity and compassion. It's, it's really incredible. These qualities that we have forgotten about, that somehow they're dormant, you know, they're there, but we don't remember them. So watching these qualities awaken in you and in myself and in others, it's so beautiful. Reminds me of this poem, Kabir, the great mystic poet, writes, The guest is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden in the seed. We are all struggling. None of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in this world. That reminds me of that. And so tonight what I want to talk about is the parami of wisdom. And there's a statue that's very inspiring behind me of Prajnaparamita, the mother of the Buddhas. Prajna, wisdom, paramita, perfection of wisdom, you could say. And so I also went down to the bookstore today and I was looking for this Tibetan deity named Manjushri. He also represents wisdom and has this great sword, sword of wisdom. They sold out, so unfortunately, <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> I was going to put him on the altar in honor of Uyula. <laughs> but um, Manjushri and his sword is cut through delusion, and wisdom functions in that way. There's this piece that the Buddha, words that the Buddha spoke that I like. He's talking to monks, but we can just put ourselves uh, in this place. So he says, there are, O oh monks, these four splendors. What for? The splendor of the moon, the splendor of the sun, the splendor of fire, and the splendor of wisdom. Of these four splendors, this is the best, the splendor of wisdom. There are amongst these four radiances, these four lights, these four lusters, these four sources of illumination. Of these four sources of illumination, this is the best, illumination by wisdom. So I've come to realize something in my short period on this planet and this incarnation. And that is that truly wise beings are rare. 
they're rare. There's this joke uh, in The New Yorker, a cartoon, another Dharma teacher showed it to me. Uh, I don't have it, but I remember it so clearly, it made me laugh. So uh, there's these four squares, and in the first square, there's this man who's kind of wearing this kind of conservative-looking clothes, and he's climbing the Himalayas, right? He's scaling up, kind of like Spider-Man, sweating profusely, uh, looking for something, going towards something. And then the next picture is there's this wise Indian sage sitting in a cave, you know, long flowing beard, meditating, and, you know, full lotus position, bare-chested, you know, and then there's the third uh, little square is him finally struggling up into the cave, you know, getting there. And then he uh, says to this great sage who opens his eyes, this great being, he says, what is the meaning of life? And the sadhu sage looks at him and he said, if I knew the meaning of life, do you think I'd be sitting up here in my underwear? <laughs> And the man says, this crushed look, right? Got to have the answer to this. So devotion arises very easily for me when I think about enlightened beings. I think about human beings who have conquered and overcome a lot of the inner obstacles because I recognize that wisdom is so rare and so precious. Those who spend their lives cultivating the paramis and sharing that wisdom with the world brings tears to my eyes. Because so many people are not doing that. So many of you have talked about on, in the interviews going into the gratitude hut and feeling this power and this love or some these emotions when you go in there and you look at the walls of these teachers, you know, and you see their, their quotes. And, and these are human beings who have devoted their lives to wisdom, cultivating that wisdom. And many people misunderstand wisdom. It's very different than knowledge. Very different than knowledge. We can have a lot of education and know about a lot of things, but that doesn't translate over to what the wisdom of what the Buddhas were talking about. As we see sometimes some of the most incredible minds building nuclear weapons and things like that. So intellect is different. And the Buddha's teachings are this incredible treasure of pure wisdom. If you think about it, he left a detailed map behind. Detailed to the incredible level of, you know, step by step, leading us out of samsara and grief and suffering. He's offering this to the seekers of truth, medicine for those who are sick. So genuine wisdom is won through much patience and diligence and strong motivation. It's so easy to get lost in this world of illusion and delusion, as they call the Maya in the Hindu tradition, the delusion of the world. A big practice, a big part of our practice is remembering, this constant remembering the truth. It's easy to be mindful. What's challenging is remembering. 
to be mindful. And often you hear people coming on my train going, I knew this when I was young, I forgot. I knew this last week, but I forgot. Like, what? This remembering. And sometimes I hear the same teachings again and again and again. And you will if you've been on retreat, the same teachings. And somehow they're new all the time. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is so. I have this theory that each of us is born with our share of wisdom and we slowly forget as we grow up in this culture. And as children, we learn these values, the golden rule, right? Treat other people as you want to be treated. And when I teach children mindfulness and education, they often ask them about how do you live together in community? And they will understand the law of what goes around, comes around. They understand this. And so many of Many children are wise. And over time, we forget in our culture, sort of drowns out the truth in a lot of ways. So as wise beings, we need to understand that we live in a universe that's governed by the laws of cause and effect. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, states, the fundamental precept of Buddhism is interdependence or the law of cause and effect. This simply states that everything which an individual being experiences is derived through action from motivation. Motivation is thus the root of both action and experience. From this understanding are derived the Buddhist theories of consciousness and rebirth. So I think what is so important to understand is that our motivation in each moment is directly related to our understanding of reality, to our ability to see clearly, and to our level of wisdom. Wisdom, therefore, is crucial. It's the great purifier. It purifies our motivation. So... Again and again in the Buddhist text, you hear this word and this teaching about what's called samsara. So what does samsara mean exactly? So it's this deeply ingrained, one way of looking at it is it's this ingrained habit of looking for happiness outside of ourselves and creating our own mental and physical suffering again and again. This is one definition, going in a circle again and again and again. Samsara literally means wandering on. In the Tibetan tradition, it means wheel of suffering. So this wandering on is so painful. And we can see this in our lives. We really look. We do things again and again, and they often lead to the exact same result. According to the Buddha and all the Buddhas, we have gone through millions of rounds of birth and death countless times in different forms, again and again. The Buddha once asked his monks, which do you think is greater, the water and the oceans? So imagine that, the water and the oceans, four great oceans. Or the tears that you have shed while wandering on and on and on. His answer, tears. 
But we think about how many tears in just this retreat, right? <laughs> Start to think this could be accurate. And it's touching. So at many Buddhist film festivals, they play the movie Groundhog Day. Remember that movie with Bill Murray? San Francisco recently had a Buddhist film festival, and a friend of mine went, and she went to see Groundhog Day, and it was a huge group of these monks there. <laughs> laughing hysterically through the entire movie. And at the end of the movie, they started clapping. And she thought it was so sweet, and she was so touched uh, by that experience. And she was watching the movie again now. She's been practicing for some time. She hadn't seen the movie since she was very young. And so as you know the plot, he lives this one day again and again and again. And at first he relates to every possible way of greed, hatred, getting women, cheating, lying, eating huge amounts of food, I mean, killing himself again and again, killing other people again and again. And finally, by the end of the movie, after he has exhausted himself on every manipulation strategy, he comes to this place of love and kindness and pretty soon lives the whole day serving others, helping others with these qualities of care, right? And then he wakes up from this, what is, who knows, is it a dream? What happened? And so these Buddhist monks clap for a long time. Like, he got it. <laughs> In some way, that's our, our same journey is that. It almost seems like a mystical fairy tale, right? We move, we slay the dragon, we move more and more towards good, we conquer. But in a lot of ways, this fairy tale is true. I think in men, it's hard to believe this when I was young because the whole world is engaged in such insane behavior that we begin to doubt ourselves. We have to doubt our own heart. We doubt our Buddha nature, and it can be so discouraging. Like, we give up on it. Well, nobody else is doing it. Can this really be the way? Could I really believe in this? In the end, the Buddha sat down and looked at his own mind directly to find freedom. The war was raged in his own mind. So I'd like to read a little description. This is written by Thich Nhat Hanh of the Buddha's Enlightenment. So he writes, Gautama felt as though a prison which had confined him for thousands of lifetimes had broken open. Ignorance had been the jail keeper. Because of ignorance, his mind had been obscured, just like the moon and the stars hidden by the storm clouds. Clouded by endless waves of deluded thoughts, the mind had falsely divided reality into subject and object, self and others, existence and non-existence, birth and death, and from these discriminations wrong, wrong, arose wrong views. The prisons of feelings, craving, grasping, and becoming, the suffering of birth, old age, sickness, and death only made the prison walls thicker. The only thing to do was to seize the jailkeeper and see his true face. The jailkeeper was ignorance. Once the jailkeeper was gone, the jail would disappear and never be rebuilt again. So that's a 
That's sort of beautiful description of we're battling this ignorance in the mind. Now I'd like to read you words directly from the Buddha, shorter, called Supreme Awakening. The Buddha writes, as he accounts this uh, in the Dhammapada, he says, through the rounds of birth, I roamed without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. House builder, you're seen. You will not build a house again. All your rafters broken, the ridge pole destroyed, gone to the unformed. The mind has come to the end of craving. So in essence, just like Groundhog Day, we become free when we no longer engage in the acts that lead to suffering. Our lives become an expression of wisdom and we engage in acts that lead to freedom. Another story from the Cherokee Nation. A grandfather from the Cherokee Nation was talking with his grandson. He said, a fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil and ugly. He is anger, envy, war, greed, self-pity, sorrow, regret. He goes on to name all of these qualities, inferiority, lies, false pride, selfishness, arrogance. The other wolf is beautiful and good. He's friendly, joyful, peaceful, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, compassion, gratitude, and deep vision. So all of the paramis are in this list. This same fight is going on inside you and inside every other human as well. The grandson paused in deep reflection because of what his grandfather had just said. Then he finally cried out, Grandfather, which wolf will win? The elder Cherokee replied, the one that you feed. And so on this retreat, we're feeding the wise wolf, (laughs) the paramis. It's good medicine. We're not feeding the other. So this insight, here we are doing insight meditation, insight and intuitive wisdom are the same to me. So insight comes out of this wordless, intuitive feeling in the body. It's an understanding that happens. We can use a thinking mind to clarify some things, but we can't think our way to authentic wisdom. If so, we would already be there, right? I mean, how many of us you know, think and think and think about everything, our problems, our, what we want, what we don't want? So insight's much deeper than that. It's much deeper. A funny story for you kind of makes fun of our thinking mind. Roshi Kapalu agreed to educate a group of psychoanalysts about Zen. 
After being introduced to the group by the director of the Analytic Institute, Hiroshi quietly sat down upon a cushion placed on the floor. A student entered, prostrated before the master, and then seated himself on another cushion a few feet away, facing his teacher. What is Zen? the student asked. Hiroshi produced a banana, peeled it, and started eating. Is that all? Can't you show me anything else? the student said. Come closer, please, the master replied. The student moved in, and the Roshi waved the remaining portion of the banana before the student's face. The student prostrated and left. A second student arose to address the audience. Do you all understand? When there was no response, the student added, you have just witnessed a first-rate demonstration of Zen. Are there any questions? <laughs> After a long silence, someone spoke up bravely. Uh, Roshi, I'm not satisfied with your demonstration. You have shown us something that I'm not sure about. I don't think I understand. Is it possible for you to tell me what Zen is? He sighed, looked at the student. If you must insist on words, the Roshi replies, and Zen is an elephant copulating with a flea. <laughs> that was kind of a joke, right? So our mind tries to tell me what this is, explain to me what this is. How do you explain the unexplainable in some way? Much of the wisdom of the American Indian is written in symbols, a language without letters or sounds that speak to the part of our nature which remembers. Remembers. Wisdom is developed through insight, and at this retreat we are practicing this insight. So what, what are these insights? What, are, what is happening here? So traditionally, the Buddha talked about these three characteristics. The three characteristics are suffering, impermanence, and no-self, non-self, egolessness. So as we sit here on retreat, or in our lives, we have insights into these three again and again and again. And this functions as an incredible light of wisdom begins to develop when we see into these three. So characteristics is kind of an odd way to describe them. So you could say that a characteristic of fire is heat. Right? That would be one characteristic. The Buddha says a characteristic of this being born in this human realm are these three. That you experience these three. The suffering, some permanence, and no self. So let's talk about the first one a bit. Because with these insights, what I've noticed in myself and others is that we have insights and then sometimes big insight where we think, I'll never be the same. I cannot believe I didn't see this. It just hit you in a wave of clarity. My goodness, and you just let go. But most of the time, it's like cutting a huge tree down. I've never cut a huge tree down, but imagine if there was a tree that it would take a long time if you had a little axe. And often you'd have to strike at the same place again and again and again and again. And that's how insight is. 
Again, it's like slowly, 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 and then that big tree falls. And so in retreat, we naturally begin to have insight into these three things, even if we're not aware of it. And we begin to let go, because wisdom's function, again, is the sword of mandatory. It cuts through delusion, cuts through our clinging, our ego grasping. So that first characteristic, the suffering. So another word for suffering that I like is stress. Because sometimes it's hard to identify suffering. We're sitting here, we have great food, we had a beautiful day. Suffering? Yeah, you know, it is suffering on one level. But it's not the suffering that some people are experiencing in the world. War and famine. Very, very sad things happening. No clothes to clothe themselves. You know, just a lot. And we all know this this suffering. The Buddha talked about the suffering of old age, sickness, and death. Another word for the suffering is a disenchantment. Disenchantment. So the Four Noble Truths are very important to see. The Buddha talked about that this suffering is inherent in life, that you can't escape it. Think about what you've endured here, the stress of the mind. He's talking about that level and all of the other levels. The suffering of getting what you want, craving, not getting, you know, getting what you don't want. All of this is kind of cycle. A piece from Joseph Campbell that I liked a lot, I think, hits it perfectly on the head. He said, as the Buddha observed the workings of his mind, he realized how one craving after another took possession of his heart. He noticed how human beings were ceaselessly yearning to become something else, go somewhere else and acquire something they do not have. Blinded in our desires, we almost never see things as they are in themselves. But our vision is colored by whether we want them or not, how we can get them, how they can bring us profit. These petty cravings assail us hour by hour, minute by minute, so that we know no rest. We are constantly consumed and distracted by the compulsion to become something different than what we are at present. So you can relate to this, like this constantly becoming, wanting anything but this, wanting a new body, wanting a new life, wanting a new relationship, wanting, 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 wanting to get over something, wanting to experience something this kind of constant uh, moving into grasping is what the Buddha is talking about here. It's important insight to see that this is the way it is for everyone, not just you. This is what I think there's 8 billion people on the planet. This is a lot of stress, (laughs) a lot of confusion. And so we have to also look that the majority of our suffering at this point in our practice is mind-created. That's shocking, that we are creating this. A powerful teaching by the Buddha I'm going to read. I felt inspired to read a lot of the Buddha's words tonight, so really take them in that this is a direct teaching that he is still living, he is still teaching. 
That's the name of Jack's new book, The Buddha is Still Teaching. And I love that, like right here, right now, to us. So the Buddha says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So this is powerful. With our thoughts, we make the world. All that we are arises with our thoughts. So at a young age, I had very little interest in worldly life. I just wasn't, that didn't seem to, I didn't connect with what I saw around me very much. And I saw so much suffering in my childhood, in my family, in my community. And a question that I would ask again and again was, why? 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 It was kind of this mantra. (laughs) Why is it like this? Have you ever asked that question? Why are things the way that they are? And of course, people didn't really have many answers. The one classic one I got from my mother was, oh, spring, life's a bitch, then you die. (laughs) That was her. In some way, there's some truth, you know, there's like some aspect of teaching in that. But I I said, okay. That was her reality, that, you know, let's just endure it until it's over, right? One day we'll be dead, and then it'll be good, of peace, finally. She would say things like that. And I would think, no, 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 this cannot be the, the whole story. I just don't believe it. I did, in my bones, I said, no, I, I don't believe this. This is not it. But that dissatisfaction that everyone feels and that I notice is real. The Buddha had everything when he grew up. You know, everything everything that you would seek in a human life that people tell you is going to lead to happiness, right? He was a prince, my goodness, right? A prince and wealthy and handsome and educated and carried around on thrones, people fanning him, and beautiful women, and the best food, and the best clothes, and everything. And he, too, became unhappy. This was important for me to see. So this is a little piece out of the Pali Canon where he describes a little bit about his life. He said, Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace. One where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varnasi, 
My turban was made from Varnasi, as were my tunic and my lower garments and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. You know what that means. <laughs> I did not come down from the palace. <laughs> and he goes on to say that this food was brought to him and all of this. And then he says, at the end of this, he's describing that early life. And he's saying, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such refinement, the thought occurred to me. I too am subject to old age, sickness, and death. I have not gone beyond. I still have confusion. And he became unhappy and he left. And then imagine giving away all of that. In one moment, just saying, I'm done with that life. Picking up some rags off the road, putting them on, cutting your hair, and saying goodbye to that. And living a very different life. He became disenchanted. He saw that this is not happiness. And so that was inspiring for me. So happiness is not found outside. I started to realize that. It's not found in objects. It's not found in fortune and fame. Another part of this dukkha is impermanence that we some live with this impermanence. We live with this, uh, as we say, living on a house of cards. And I talked about this other night, the other night with equanimity, that we become more equanimous when we understand impermanence. But it's bigger than that. This is an insight that we have into this. All that arises passes away. So there's two sides to impermanence that I just want to say a few things about tonight. There's the hard aspect of impermanence and the soft aspect of impermanence. Pema Chodron writes a little bit about the hard aspect. She says, we know that all is impermanent. We know everything wears out. Although we buy this truth, we can buy this truth intellectually, emotionally, we have a deep-rooted aversion to it. We want permanence. We expect permanence. Our natural tendency is to seek security. We believe we can find it. To put it concisely, we suffer when we resist the noble and refutable truth of impermanence and death. We expect that what is always changing should be graspable and predictable. We are born with a craving for resolution and security that governs our thoughts, words, and actions. We are like people in a boat that is falling apart, trying to hold on to water. <coughs> and so that's sort of the hard aspect of that, that we can think about death, we can think about old age, but also we can think about new life, beauty. So a story I want to tell you about the softer aspect of impermanence and the insight I had. So I got a call uh, a few months back from the editor of this magazine called Inquiring Mind. 
And some of you may have read it. It's a Vipassana uh, magazine. And many of the Spirit Rock teachers write beautiful articles all over the country. It goes and it has a lot of good information. I'm sure there'll be a huge stack put out at the end of this retreat. So the editor called me and she said, we're doing an issue on enlightenment. Would you like to contribute something? And at first I laughed. I was like, I don't think so right now. Uh, you know, I'm still working on it or something, a joke. <laughs> and she said, oh, don't worry. Everybody's contributing, you know. And she said, she said well, if you think of something, let me know. Because basically I said, I don't really have anything to say. And then suddenly I remembered. I said, wait, I do have this one incident that happened that I think I felt enlightened for a few days. I said, it's very short. She says, great, we only have a short, tiny amount of space. That should be perfect. Send it in, right, right away. So I thought, okay, okay. So, the, uh, so it's in there, this little short, very short story. But, but um, it was when I was on retreat. Uh, I went on retreat, uh, a self-retreat with a friend of mine, and it was just for a couple of days up at a cabin. It was on the, I had been doing a lot of practice leading up to that point, and we decided we would just sit and walk, and we were offered this beautiful cabin, and it, was, it seemed like a great time to practice. And so we were there, him and I, and we're dear friends, and he was walking, and we were sitting outside in a little deck area, and he was walking by the deck doing walking meditation very slowly. And I was meditating, but I opened my eyes, and I looked up and saw him walking. And then this huge insight into a perm impermanence arose in me. And it, it went like this. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. And I thought, I, I, I wasn't thinking, but this insight in me arose that here's my friend in this moment, but it will soon be goodbye. And then at the moment, I was actually paralyzed. I felt like a paralysis had hit me, and suddenly I saw the whole world as hello, goodbye, that everything was arising and passing. And I looked down at the ground, and I saw little bugs roaming by, and they were hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. Everything was hello, and suddenly flashes of my whole family came in my mind of hello, goodbye, those who had passed over to, out of this life, and those who were going to, and... and Suddenly, everything was hello, goodbye, and I suddenly got it. Like we appear, and we disappear. And everything appears, and it disappears. And for a long time, I was just kind of frozen there, but I didn't realize that my eyes, it was just flood of just tears coming. And it wasn't a sorrow, it was a little bit sorrowful, but it was mostly impacted by the truth of this. Like, Hello to everything that lives. And then suddenly I looked up and saw a bird. I'm like, ah, oh, what a beautiful creation. Hello, goodbye. How, I don't know how long that being will be in that form and the spirit of that. Everything was so beautiful and so radiant and so poignant to me. And so I just stayed in that state for a very, very long time. And I was trying to explain it to my friend. And he was kind of like, okay, something really. I said, no, you have to understand. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. You have to get this. And he started talking about his daughters. And he was trying to get it and going, you're right. Hello, goodbye to them. And I was thinking, you raise them and you will say bye. And the story of Jack seeing his daughter at 16 driving off and having that's hello goodbye like she's going on her own journey and that we put all this love in and it goes and 
And anyway, for three days, I was in this mystical state of weeping, wandering around, talking to trees, looking at them, hello, goodbye, one day you won't be here. And I could understand all those mystics, you know, in India, by the Ganges, kind of in a state of ecstasy. Maybe I thought maybe they stay in that state of hello, goodbye for years, and they just keep seeing it all, and they can't. And the ecstasy and the poignancy of life. And so that's more of the soft aspect of it. And death and birth are so mystical. And I think it's important that we think about our own death and it not be frightening. The Buddha said, death is certain. The time is unknown. And that reflection on our own impermanence, like Leela said the other night, is a cutting through. And people who have had near-death experiences often change their life, right? That, that the illusion of permanence, the illusion that I'll be here forever, the illusion that it's guaranteed, even a young person, oh, I'll be here. We don't know that. It's always hello, goodbye. This retreat is hello, goodbye. All this what we created was this monastery together and all this experience. Where are they now? Well, I'll be gone on Sunday. And it'll just be a memory of this experience. That's hello, goodbye. So the Buddha said this is important. And what I think is also poignant about this teaching is that this was the final thing the Buddha said when he died. He talked about this impermanence as a teaching. So the scene is him dying in Kushnagar in India, surrounded by all these people, his attendants and people, since he had told people that he was going to die ahead of time, they knew to come on this date, and there he is lying down. And it said that there are thousands and thousands of devas there. You know, all these beings from other realms came down to watch this great being, like, my God. And everybody had thoughts of impermanence, like, if this great, you know, just amazing being could die, what does that say about us? <laughs> You know, wake up. And so he says, his final words are, Now, monks, I declare to you, all things are of a nature to decay. All things are of a nature. It's a very nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Saka, at that time, Shaka, the ruler of the devas, also uttered this. Impermanent are compounded things, prone to rise and fall. Having risen, they're destroyed. They're passing away. Truest bliss. So at that moment, it was a great teaching on impermanence and great letting go for everyone. And so we have to think about this. This has to be something that is a part of our forefront, that when something starts to fall apart, that relationships come together, they dance for a while, and they separate. So if we hang on, Joseph Goldstein is, uh, always used to say, clinging is rope burn. <laughs> right? It's very nature is to separate. It's very nature is to, to go. It's very nature is hello, goodbye. And so... To understand that over and over, to have that insight, do you see how that could help let go? And suddenly we're riding this wild wave of life, right? If we let go and everything isn't permanent, there's sort of a magic that happens in that. Every moment's like, wow, what could happen now? There's sort of an interest that opens, awakening, an excitement to the day. 
well, I don't really know what's going to happen. Let's go. You know, it's an adventure. We open up and we see that we appreciate. We stop clinging. And that's the point of this characteristic. So the third one is the emptiness, the selflessness. I think this is a really liberating insight. People have talked about also noticing when they wake up every day, there's this narrator that clicks on as soon as the eyes open. Hello, what's going on? What are you going to do today? I'm judging everything, single thing. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. Maybe this. Oh, it's noisy. It, you know, this noise and this kind of uh, incredible to see that noise and that obsession with ourselves. I like when Jack talked about somebody reporting that they're in the phone booth with a lunatic. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm trapped in a phone booth with a lunatic. But the fact that they had awareness, I'm in here with a lunatic, that's some space. <laughs> I'm not the lunatic. <laughs> that's the insight. That's the insight. It's like, what is this experience of some lunatic? There's some space to that. The I, consciousness, if you notice, if you notice whenever you're sitting here and you're at peace and you're resting in the great, the natural great peace, that usually what arises to knock you off your seat is something that starts with, I want, I need, ah. It's a story of I in that moment. We'll just be sitting here, comfortable, birds chirping, rain. Suddenly the story of I comes. Eckhart Tolle says, Once we identify or imagine or conceive ourselves as an entity, we immediately create a schism, a separation between ourselves and the people and the things around us. Once we have this concept of self, we respond to the people and things around us with either desire or aversion. In this sense, the self is the real villain of peace. Seeing that the self is the source and the cause of all suffering, and seeing that the rejection of the self is the cause of the end of suffering, rather than trying to defend, protect, and preserve the self, why should we not do our best to reject and eliminate this false idea. It was hard to, that, that, when I first heard the teachings of no self, it was so counterintuitive. No spring, no me, what about my dreams, my hopes, my talents? You know, it was like immediately grasping on. I think that's, all of that is there. It just doesn't belong to anyone. <laughs> the love and the loneliness that this idea of self causes is incredible. When we see ourselves as separate, we're cut off from the universe, we're cut off from everything. Suddenly we pull away and we're isolated. This loneliness is, in, is maddening. I them feel like it's the root of the depression of our time. Most people, when I meet them in our center in Oakland, they say, I'm so disconnected, I'm so lonely, Spring. What is the source of this? Will meditation help me feel connected? And I often say yes, because when you sit in the present moment without the story, or you recognize the story, you're connected. 
like a plug plugs in. You plug into the universe at that moment, something so much bigger, so much brighter. When we're lost, like Philip said, when we're lost in our own movie, we're cut off from the love of the universe. We're cut off from life. We're cut off from this life energy. Interconnectedness is incredibly important. It's, as Joanna Macy says, she says, we are like nerve cells in the mind of a great being. And we're a part of this whole thing, even if we don't understand it. As the Buddha awoke, he said he saw 10,000 world systems, and we're all a part of that. So much bigger. When we're last in our story of I, we live in a box this big. You feel like your mind sometimes is claustrophobic. Like, let me out into the world. What is the story? <sighs> and we can put it away for periods. Like, ah, thank you. And then we feel like we're free out into the cosmos. We also, when we're lost in our own drama, we don't see and feel the love that is in the universe. It's my deep belief that the universe is a loving, incredible place. But when we're in our story, we don't connect to that. We're only connecting in our dream realm. We're not stepping out. So then when we're in our lunatic telephone booth, we project that madness on the world. And we strike out confused. One of my favorite poems about exactly our dilemma is called A Meadow Lark Sang. And so it says, the child whispered, God, speak to me. And a meadowlark sang, the child did not hear. So the child yelled, God, speak to me. And the thunder rolled across the sky. But the child did not listen. The child looked around and said, God, let me see you. And the stars shone brightly. But the child did not notice. And the child shouted, God, show me a miracle. And a life was born, but the child did not know. So she cried out in utter despair, touch me, God, let me know you are here. Whereupon God reached down and touched the child, but the child brushed the butterfly away and walked away unknowingly. And so we're part of this cosmos and this magic and this mystery of life. And it's so much bigger than our small stories and our Shakespeare and our, you know, that there's like opening up to the something so much bigger. Wisdom, when sharpened, begins to cut through the delusion of the mind and we start to see the possibilities. We begin to have more insights into the characteristics slowly. We begin to see, ah, that suffering is inherent. It's okay. It's not personal. We get disenchanted with the circular aspect of our life, the samsara. We get bored. Suddenly we think freedom sounds really good. Get me off this wheel. But you have to recognize you're on the wheel to get off. Otherwise you're just on, on, spinning. We have insights into impermanence. We start to see over time, as so many people have said in interviews, they're starting to see outside the mind and the stories, right? See something deeper, connect to something beautiful. 
seeing two lizards talking to each other and being so enchanted because you're part of that conversation in some way. You know, like, ah, I'm witnessing this, connected. So I'd like to end this talk with a passage as we're talking about wisdom tonight. This will be Ode to Ajahn Wang. <laughs> you might have recognized this picture down in the Gratitude Hut. Really fierce looking monk kind of sitting there. Ajahn Man was reported to have been, uh, become a fully enlightened being. And this is his autobiography written by his student, Ajahn Mahabua, who was also reportedly uh, had reached enlightenment as well, or a high stage of enlightenment. Anyway, this is his biography. I highly recommend it. It's extremely exciting, dynamic, magical, everything you, know, you would expect and more. <laughs> so I'm going to read just a short passage. This is his great description of his awakening. And after I read it, you'll see why I chose it as it talks about wisdom. Uh, and to me, this is the perfection of wisdom and where that we're all going. So you can settle back. I'll just take a couple moments to read this. And this is in his chapter entitled, A Heart Released. Just to give you a little bit more. So he is sitting out alone, practicing fervently for many days and days. So Ajahn Man, and I will translate the Pali words. There's a lot of Pali in here, so I'll do the translation. Acharya Man investigated thoroughly, internally and externally, his mindfulness and wisdom. Extern internally and externally. His mindfulness and wisdom penetrated all around, constantly moving in and out, up and down, all the while resolving issues, detaching himself and then letting go as he cut, slashed, and pulverized every manner of falsehood with all the strength he could muster. Feeling unbound as a giant fish swimming happily in the ocean, he looked back on his entire past and saw only dark, obstructive times lurking there, fraught with all kinds of dangerous, inevitable consequences. His heart beat faster at the prospect of finding a way to save himself. Looking to the future, he saw before him only a majestic, empty expanse of brilliant illumination, a view that completely surpassed any conventional understanding and is utterly beyond all description. Ajahn Mas Mun sat in meditation late that night, not too long after supreme mindfulness and supreme wisdom had reached the peak of their performance. Like a wheel of dharma, they moved in unison as they rotated nonstop around the mind and everything related to it. He was residing at the base of a mountain in a broad open area covered with enormous flat rocks. Seated in meditation that night, the crucial moment had arrived. The battle lines were drawn. Supreme mindfulness and supreme wisdom, the razor-sharp weapons, against ignorance, an enemy especially adroit at repulsing their advances, then counterattacking, leaving its opponent in total disarray. 
Since time immemorial, no one had ever dared to challenge its might, allowing ignorance to reign supreme and unopposed over the kingdom of birth and death inside the hearts of all living beings. But at 3 a.m. that night, when Ajahn Man launched his final all-out assault, the result was total destruction of the king's mighty throne and complete overthrow of his reign in the kingdom of birth and death. Suddenly impotent and deprived of room to maneuver, the king could not maintain his sovereignty. At that moment, ignorance perished, victim to a lightning strike of magnificence, brilliance. Ajahnman described how that fateful moment was accompanied by a tremor that appeared to shake the entire universe. Celestial beings throughout the vast expanse immediately paid tribute to his supreme accomplishment, roaring an exclamation of approval that reverberated across the whole universe and proclaimed the appearance, the appearance of another disciple of the Buddha in this world. The perfection of wisdom. So let's just sit together for a moment. May we dedicate all of this merit and all of the goodness that we've accumulated over the last nine days. May we dedicate all this merit to all beings so that we may quickly attain enlightenment for their sake. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy your walking.